0: For more information on our product line, visit fullyloadedchew.com. All right, guys, welcome to today's show. And joining me on the show today, I've got a couple of guys who, if they can't convince me that turkey hunting is amazing, I don't think anybody can, because these two guys are Pete Mueller and Mark Hatfield with the NWTF. And if you don't know what the NWTF is, well, first of all, you're living under a rock. You need to get your head out of the sand because it is one of the leading conservation organizations in the country, if not the world. And they do so much good for the outdoors, for habitat restoration, for hunter recruitment, for, I mean, a whole number of things that I'm hoping that we dive into today on the show. But we're going to be chatting all about what their roles are at the NMBTF, what the organization is doing today how you can become a part of it, and it's just going to be an amazing BS session about turkey hunting as well. So I hope you guys enjoy this. It's going to be awesome. Let's jump in. Like he was doing things that were just badass. That was one of the coolest moments of my life. I was really scared, but knowing that Dan had the gun, I did have the rifle, like we would be okay. All right, guys, so I am constantly getting asked about the gear that I'm using, and the great news is that I've got it all listed out on Go Wild. Now, if you listen carefully, I'm going to tell you how you can get a $10 gift card to use toward picking up some new gear. Go Wild is a free social community where your photos aren't censored. They're actually encouraged, so much so that Go Wild will give you points for things like sharing your trophies, gear reviews, and inviting friends. Now, as you earn those points, you can unlock awesome rewards like gift cards and free swag, knives, huge discounts on brands like Garmin and Vortex, and so much more. Also, check this out. If you create a free account, you can unlock $10 just for trying it out. So go visit DownloadGoWild.com to get started. All right, guys. Welcome to today's show. And I'm pretty pumped about this one for a number of different reasons. Um... I'm on with a couple guys from the NWTF. First, we've got Mark Hatfield, and second, we've got Pete Mueller, and our turkey season here in Missouri hasn't started yet. Uh, It kicks off on Monday. I'm pretty pumped. I've got all my equipment out. In fact, I'm going to go put out some trail cameras for uh, turkeys here this afternoon. I'm going to go see if I can figure out where they're coming out of the woods, where they've been roosting and hopefully get the spotting scope set up and see if anything's moving out there this evening. But Mark, Pete, thank you guys so much for joining me. Absolutely, man. Happy to be on for sure. And um, Dan, this is exciting. So
1: thanks for the invitation.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've been talking to a ton of turkey hunters. I mean, I feel like it's kind of timely given that turkey season has kicked off in a lot of places and is starting in other places here shortly. Um, you guys are with the NWTF. Would you guys mind, I guess, before we jump into your roles there, share with the listeners a little bit about your hunting history, maybe how you got into the outdoors and, and why it's such a big part of your life now. Mark, you want to go first?
1: Yeah, I'll kick this off. Um, so thanks again, Dan, you know, looking forward to opportunity to sit down with you this morning to, to chat. So, um, really how I got involved with, with hunting and fishing, you know, really kind of as a kid growing up was I was kind of sent off to grandparent's boot camp. My parents would send me over there and and they ran a cattle farm, you know, small cattle farm and lots of cousins and man, they just kicked us outside. And so we were playing in creeks and ponds and, you know, trying to catch frogs and all this other stuff. And then, so that kind of started everything for me. And then, um, Really got into hunting and fishing when I was about 13 or 14. Uh, I squirrel hunted a little bit and you know, small game, the traditional pathway. And then I had a cousin that actually left for college. And so my uncle uh, said, Man, I need somebody to hunt fish with because now my son that I used to do that with is no longer here. So, man, they, I started tagging along with him, turkey hunting, deer hunting. I had uh, two or three other uncles that were really active in hunting, and they would stop by and pick me up. And so that was really how I got involved. And so it was the grandparents' boot camp in Kentucky. And then um just getting kicked outside and having to uh you know, kind of entertain ourselves. So that was kind of how I started.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, that's I feel like that's one of the best ways for people to get involved in the outdoors. You don't give them uh, a tablet or I mean, back in the day I didn't have a tablet. I didn't I, it took everything from my parents to buy us a super Nintendo. So we had BB guns and we would shoot anything that moves, including each other. Um, and, and that's where we kind of got our, yeah, we, in the outdoors.
1: Uh, we had BB gun wars and everything else, you know? And so it was a uh, nonstop, I don't know how we survived, but we did, and you know, here we are today.
0: Yeah. Pete, what about you? What, what did hunting look like for you, um, growing up, or I guess, when did you get into it? You know, um,
2: my family did a little bit of hunting. My dad, um, kind of old school, actually hunted deer with a flintlock uh, before any of the kids in my family were born and, and actually kind of gave it up for the most part when, um, uh, when all the kids came around, but we still did some small things like squirrel hunting and then, uh, got involved with, with, uh, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts and everything like that. And there were some opportunities there, but he and I still did some stuff on the side, um, uh, taking out dogs chasing birds, but there, there really wasn't a lot of opportunity for other stuff around where I was uh, growing up in Delaware. And I I remember getting more into hunting when I hit college, um, and, uh, you know, and actually ended up taking my dad's rifle down there, um, kept it in my apartment and go hunting with buddies down in North Carolina. And then, um, as far as turkeys go, that, that wasn't until I was, you know, early twenties, but it was, I moved out West to Wyoming on a whim. And I remember seeing one of the spring Turkey guys at the, the Wyoming game and fish had come out and they were talking about high success rates in the black Hills. And, you know, I was like, man, I'll give this a try. So I went and bought a single sided Primo's box call and a two dimensional Montana decoy and went out there and I, I gave it hell and uh, managed to bag a bird the first year. And, um, and I think finding that success after not really knowing anything about it and educating myself on it was something that just had me hooked. And I, I've honestly been hooked on it ever since um but you know since since i didn't grow up chasing turkeys and we just didn't really have them here uh it's something i've enjoyed actually taking my kids out and doing now in fact uh youth day here in south carolina not too long back i guess it was what about two weeks ago mark um, yeah okay. but uh but i got a chance to take my daughter out my 11
0: year old just got her first bird uh on youth day so that's awesome that's pass, passing it on man Man, that is so cool. That's one thing that I'm really looking forward to is getting my son and my daughter out there. I've got a five-year-old boy and a four-year-old girl. Well, I was doing a podcast recording with a guest last night, and uh, they're from Missouri also. And they were like, oh, yeah, I, I've got my my son out the past two years. He's seven. He's gotten two uh, two turkeys so far. And I was like, wait a minute that's right here in Missouri, you can get kids out at six. And so my son turns, he turns six the day before dove season. And so it won't be till this fall, but I, I woke him up this morning and I was like, Hey bud, do you want to go deer hunting this fall with dad? And he just like fist pumping in the air, yelling like, (laughs) yes, yes. So I can't wait for that. Um, there's something about getting kids out there. Uh, it's just, it's the progression of hunting. As I see it, like once you've done it to be able to help somebody else be successful with it, that's just the next stage. And it's like the next most fulfilling thing. So um, I I couldn't agree more with that. I think
2: South Carolina, um, I don't know if there's a youngest age you can get kids out, but like you still have to get the kids their turkey tags but they actually don't need a license until they're, I think it's maybe 16 years 16.
1: old. Yeah.
2: Um, wow. So kind of a neat thing that, that puts it in control of the parents as to when they want to get their kids involved and allows them to expose their kids to it. Um, you know, obviously the kids need to have an adult mentor with them, but it's, it's a neat way to do it in my opinion.
1: Yeah, it really is. You know, like I mentioned in my, you know, comments is I grew up squirrel hunting, deer hunting, but it was a progression, you know, for me to, to do that. And I think so many kids now, we jump them to, to, you know, turkey or, and we skip some things, you know, and, and one thing I think we've got to recognize is that some kids are going to be at different paces, you know, and engagement and what their confidence levels are and, and, you know, what they want to do and how they do it. And, and just having multiple opportunities, you know, is it a squirrel season? Is it a dove season? Is it then turkey or deer? Is it turkey? You know, what's the, what's the right sequence for those kids? And, And you've got to have it open to all, all ages. So that's going to be kind of cool to, uh, you know, and again, I've got a 10 year old little boy. He's, he's excited about turkey hunting, probably not as excited as, you know, but as, as some other 10 year old, but he's gaining confidence and interest to do it. And and that's pretty cool to see.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. I'm, my focus this summer is going to be getting my son comfortable with an actual firearm. You know, mm-hmm. I've got a BB gun for him and he, sh- he's shot it a little bit. I've had him shooting 22s. I put like my phone adapter on the scope. And so like, I can, I can see where he's aiming and help him shoot a soda can with it or help him shoot a target, um, but getting him comfortable. And then obviously I'll be out there with him this fall, but with all the technology out there, the tripods and stuff, like it'll, I, I feel like he could have a lot of fun. Out in the Deer Woods. I don't know if he'll be shooting at flying birds yet this year. Uh, I think that might be a little bit early, but uh, we'll get him. Yeah. We'll get him doing some of it.
1: Well, we've been out, you know, with my little boy. We've been out shooting rifles and 22s and BB guns and and just getting him used to the recoil and the sounds and all that stuff. You know, because that's a it's a barrier for many. You know, and my little boy, we got a mean rooster at our house, and so my little boy really, really wants to to eat that rooster. You know, so. <laughs> I don't know if we're going to go there this year or not, but he really wants to use his little 410 on the rooster to, to be able to uh, put that on the dinner table for everybody.
0: Yeah. My, my kids have, uh, they've experienced death from animals a couple times now. Uh, same thing. We had the last place that we lived, we had pigs and chickens and we had a couple of roosters and man, they would come after my son, but he would, mm-hmm. he, he loved chasing piglets. I'm like dude you're crazy man like you he is 100 percent boy he will go yeah. and jump off any rock climb up anything and i remember one day uh one of the sows got loose and she was well over 400 pounds one of the pigs and she ran back behind the house and so um another guy david and his dog they were kind of pushing the pig back towards the pen and my son is probably two or he was probably three at the time he jumps out in front of this 450 some odd pound pig and I go, I go Canyon, get back on the, get back on the sidewalk. And he just looks at me and he goes, no, dad, I got this. And I'm just imagining this sow launching him in the air. Yeah. So I grabbed him, pulled him out of the way. Um, But yeah, they, they've definitely had their experience with mean roosters, pigs, piglets, everything.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, that's cool. I, I think yeah. just the other important part about getting them involved at a young age, whether it's shooting or even just going out while you're shooting is, is just understanding the, the gun safety. And I think that that's mm-hmm. something that I obviously is, has passed over some, some generations, but knowing what to do, should, should they see a firearm laying around that, you know, during yeah. hunting season after, you know, while guns are getting clean at any of that jazz. I mean, it's, you know, my kids from a young age have known, you know, don't touch it, leave the area, go tell an adult all those things. And uh so it's it's just good knowledge in general, I think, just for for overall safety.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's that's the one thing. I mean, you know, my parents always had ours locked up under the under the bed. We had our BB guns that we could shoot and I mean those got taken away plenty of times because of stupid crap that we did. Yeah. Shooting shooting all metal Tonka trucks and it ricocheting and breaking my dad's windows on his car, that that didn't go over well. Um but yeah, to teach them the the proper techniques, and like you said, if they if they see one, what to do with it, um, it, it's something that guns, unfortunately, in society, have become like this very scary thing. And like, oh, you you, we want the kids to understand like you don't touch them, you don't play with them, they're not a toy. But at the same time, we need to be teaching them that they can be effective and useful tools as far mm-hmm. as going out and hunting or even just for recreation
1: yeah
0: um you guys so you guys have kicked off turkey season there pete you mentioned you got your daughter her first bird that's super sweet what um is the actual turkey season in full swing or has it only been youth season so far so uh here in south
2: carolina it's split into two zones and i think first youth season was back even as early as um Uh, middle of march and then it was i think right around march 25th was was youth season for the upper part um but now it's full full swing for turkey seasons here in south carolina and you know we came on the heels of some of the other southeastern states florida i think was back at like the tail end of the first week of march mississippi was open around the 14th or 15th i think um so there there's it, down here, I think Georgia is fully open now. I mean, it's, you, you're seeing your, if you're on social media, you're seeing Turkey feeds wide open with all kinds of birds, people sharing their experiences. And it's, it's a wonderful time of the year for us here at the NWTF to be able to help people share their seasons, provide further education about, you know, how to be a successful in the woods. Um, but then also just trying to let them know about the work that still needs to be done. But yeah, I mean, uh, This weekend i hope to take my son out just to tag along with me if we can get a chance to so i'm ready to hear more birds gobble
0: yeah i'm i'm pumped about that i i coyote hunted last month in the morning we went out and we were just kind of walking around getting getting out in the woods again and we were sitting there like right before daylight and i just heard the woods let loose i mean the turkeys were already gobbling i've already seen them strutting out in the fields Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're a little behind here in Missouri. I feel like um, they're they're strutting long before season ever opens here. And um, I'm just pumped. I'm excited to get out. I'm excited to get all my gear out there today, go through it. Um, all the guys are getting together tonight, and we're going to figure out a game plan for opening morning because everybody's into it here. It, yeah. I, I didn't grow up with it. I mean, I, I never turkey hunted, kind of like you, Pete. I – It wasn't until my 20s that i ever bought a turkey tag i grew up in wisconsin hunting white-tailed deer getting covered in blaze orange and wearing camo just wasn't even a thing like it wasn't part of my thought process and chasing after turkeys i was like oh i didn't turkey is what you eat at thanksgiving that's the only thing i knew about them (laughs) so um but yeah it's definitely becoming a growing passion of mine and i'm hoping to catch that bug where I'm just sold out and completely hooked on it.
1: Yeah. So so I want to touch on something you you hit on, Dan, is that that, you know, you're seeing birds gobble and strut and everything else. And so that's actually a really good thing. Is that, you know, from the biology side of things, that's really good that it's occurring before hunters are really embarking into the woods right now. Because so many times we're starting to see where there's this idea that these birds have gobbled out and that they're not going to be there and they're not going to be active and all of those things. So, you know, really Missouri's timing, you said it was coming in this weekend, which is going to be around the 16th or so um, is actually really good timing. When you look at the nesting, when hens start to nest, and that's really when you want those, those seasons to be set. So Missouri's done a great job of that. Getting it correct, setting the seasons based on that biological data to make, I guess the success or the quality of
0: the hunt really high. Yeah, that's that's good to know. I mean, you know, hunters are always biased. Whatever gets them the most birds or the biggest animal or or anything, you know, they don't I, I feel like as hunters, a lot of times we don't think about the biology side of it, what is gonna continue to grow the population, what's gonna continue to improve the ha- the habitat. It's just all about how many deer am I able to kill or how many ducks am I able to see. Um, and so that's good to hear that that you want them to be strutting and gobbling long before season actually opens um, we see it every year and I feel like gosh I, this is going to make me sound like an even worse turkey hunter I feel like it's really easy in Missouri to kill a turkey like maybe it's just the property that I hunt on they're just all over the place and if I can make it happen being as bad of a caller. I probably use all the wrong calls out there. I don't do nearly enough research, but um, we, we get on turkeys and there are so many of them around here. I haven't seen a lot of like the double bearded or like multi-beards. I haven't seen many bearded hens out here. You know, I know that those are pretty rare most places anyways, but as far as just having good turkey numbers, I, I definitely feel like Missouri's done a good job managing the turkey population.
1: Yeah, so so I'll kind of expand on that. So probably some of the reasons that you're you're hearing birds and seeing these birds is is where the season's been set. You know, the the agency's trying to set you up for as much success as you can. Now that's not fraught with, you know, in Missouri, we are seeing some unhealthy areas of the state, you know, where declines, we're not getting the recruitment there, and, and there's a big investment in research to figure that out because you know, we we started off talking about you know hunt retention recruitment and how we recruit hunters. Well, one we've got to have birds gobbling in trees because we don't have birds gobbling in trees, we're not going to have that engagement or that interest in the spring. So <clears throat> that's one thing that we're trying to figure out because there's a balance of having too much opportunity and not or not enough, and and that's where the state agencies are trying to go. And um, the fact you're hearing birds and seeing birds is uh, is a good sign, and the fact that you're not seeing very many hens is a good sign because those that means those hens are sitting on the nests
0: yeah we we get into it every year and and like i said being fairly new just in the past couple of years to turkey hunting um not fully understanding you know what the what the hen to tom ratio should be or or really in my mind when i see turkeys i'm thinking like all the turkeys in the area are out in the same field because there's so many out there um but knowing that there's a lot like there's going to be a lot of hens on the nests already and doing that thing um I don't know. I, I, I feel like we're really blessed here in Missouri and it's unfortunate to hear there are some of those dead zones where the, the population isn't quite where it needs to be or, or the numbers aren't growing. Um, but I feel like it is an awesome sport for people to get into early on, you know, to have the interaction with animals. Uh, that's something that I didn't really grow up with deer hunting. You know, we, you might hear noises here and there, but like to actually be able to communicate with an animal that you're pursuing. Um, from what I hear, that's one of the biggest draws for, for turkey hunters. And the thing that gets them the most hooked is the communication side of it.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, that that's half of the joy of being a turkey hunter is, is being out there and, and listening to the woods, wake up hearing those first gobbles in the morning. Um, even if you don't see anything what you hear those birds in the morning and they fly down and maybe they, they, you know, get a little bit tight lipped and then they move off. There's a lot of turkey hunters out there that already feel like they've had a good morning just by hearing those mm-hmm. sounds. Um, but you know, you just talked about, uh, turkey hunting being a, a good thing for starting people out on. It's actually also one of the, 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 the types of pursuits out there that in my opinion is better suited for bringing new people in just because it's, it's, it's something you can almost do as a team. Um, I was down in Texas last week with some first time hunters and we were sitting four deep in, you know, in brush blinds that we had made, but, uh, but two, two new hunters, me, and then a camera person. And we're able to sit there during the lulls of the day and, you know, carry on low, you know, low whispering conversations, provide information to them, you know, Hey, what are the birds doing? You know, Yeah, and, and it's something that, that allows you to, uh, to, to have everybody be a part of that hunt to where, you know, I think there were, again, there were about four of us when one of the gals finally was able to pull the trigger on a bird and everybody felt like they just punched tag because we had all grinded it out together. So, um, it's an amazing, amazing pursuit. And I think that, yeah, once you catch that bug and you really get it, um, it doesn't matter whether you're behind the gun or not, or you're running calls or you're just tagging along just cause you want to see turkeys interacting. It's something that, you know, you get on as many hunts as you can in a year.
0: Yeah. I, I definitely see that side of it. Like the teamwork, the, the group effort side of it, like going out with buddies and anytime they're, they're successful. I feel like I've found success as well. And talking with my cousin up in Wisconsin, I mean, that guy is a turkey finding machine. Uh, he, every year he, he calls me and he's like, Hey man, you want to get in like the big beard contest with us? And I'm like, no, because I know how many turkeys you kill. (laughs) And I think last year, if my numbers are right, he, he took 18 people out and 17 of them got birds and he's just like, dude, it is, he'll send me videos of them doubling or tripling on birds. Um, you know, he'll get a whole group of people out there. And he's like, there's something about it. He's like, even even though my season isn't until like the fourth season up in Wisconsin, mm-hmm. he's like, I feel like my turkey season has been so full and so successful just because I've been getting other people out there and watching them yeah. connect with a bird. Now, I
1: think so that's the cool part. I mean, I love it when you're in turkey camp together and Pete, you've experienced this and Dan, you probably have too, is that that, that individual that hasn't ever killed a turkey that's quiet around the dinner table the first night, you know, that's sitting there and listening and, you know, they don't really have a lot to add. And then the next morning you go out and you get them a bird and then they kind of dominate and they tell that story over and over again at the dinner table. And when everybody comes in, they, they want to tell them their story about their first bird. You know I mean? To see that transition between somebody that doesn't maybe feel a part of that group. And then the next night, 24 hours later, they're, they're, they're telling their story like there's the season vet and and that's 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 pretty cool to see
0: oh yeah i i got to experience it with my wife she's one of the first people that i got out turkey hunting and this was only like maybe two seasons after i got into it we were living in colorado at the time and we both drew tags for a, a private property in a certain unit and i took her out there and The night before i was like we're going to try to figure out where these things are roosted you know we had a couple hour drive from our home to where we were hunting and i told her about shot gobbling and you know she thought it was shot with a t and so (laughs) we were leaving the house in the dark and she's like you're forgetting the gun and i'm like no like i'm not bringing you a gun we're not hunting right now and she's like i thought you shoot and it gets them to gobble and I'm like, no, 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 absolutely not. That is not what we do. Uh, I'm not going around with a loaded gun yeah. at night the day before turkey season. Um, but yeah, watching her face change sitting in that blind opening morning, and you hear one gobble. And it's just like she went from sitting there kind of cold, looking around, to like, I mean, she is looking out every window of the blind. I'm like, stop moving, calm down. <laughs> it's gonna be all right. We've got a long, we've got a long ways to yeah. go before a turkey gets in here. So um yeah it's definitely fun to see the expression change and then the stories like you were saying mark at camp like they hunting is one of those sports that just opens people up it breaks down walls no matter how how timid they might be like once they have an encounter with a wild animal or an experience like they're going to talk about it to everybody
1: yeah
2: i think
0: uh my a buddy of
2: mine uh, josh Dalkey, with hunt stand he won't mind me sharing this story but you know he was down there in texas with us last week on this hunt and he had already bagged his bird and we still had some people left and he's like don't make me stay back in camp man he's like there's turkeys to be had he's like just let me tag along he's like put me in some group i just can't i can't sit back in camp and not watch the birds he's like it's turkey season like that's that's how eaten up most people get with it once once they uh once they love being around birds so I mean, but he jumped right in and was helping guide some of our new hunters. And, you know, that's, that's the, again, the joy about turkey season is everybody's, everybody's just as eager to help out the next person. So,
0: oh, absolutely. And, um, I, I feel like in, with hunting in general, when, when you start talking about new hunters, most hunters are all about getting new people out there. Um, the next big hurdle is teaching them the ethics, how to do it the right way the whole concept behind conservation, you know, where where the dollars from our tags and rifles and ammunition and outdoor equipment go. Um, I've had plenty of conversations with people like that that aren't hunters or might even be opposed to hunting, but when I have that face-to-face interaction with them and I explain everything that goes into it, the conservation side of it. I'm like, even though I might take the life of one animal, the amount of money I spend throughout the year that goes towards habitat improvement the amount of the the money that i put towards organizations memberships things like that like we are helping so many more animals than we're taking and as long as we can get the hunting population as a whole to buy into that and to give back more than they're taking away we're going to have plenty of animals better habitat for for the future generations
2: absolutely man
0: um you're
2: right i mean there is always like that that learning curve or the education that needs to be done um and you're not going to convert everybody to where they want to go out and pick up a firearm or a bow but as long as they they become an advocate or they they become understanding of of how conservation works in this country at least then they're on the side of policy-wise in washington knowing you know, know knowing the benefit of things to where when things come up that You know, maybe they're more likely to 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 vote in a way that that helps preserve hunting. I, I, you know, again, it's one of those things. It you hear the talk of like, do they need more hunters? You know, or are there too many people still hunting, or are public lands too crowded? But what it really boils down to is um, the percentage of the U.S. population is shrinking when it comes to the amount of people that hunt. Not the total number, maybe, but just the overall percentage. And so what what's happening is we're losing that voice. So whether it's bringing new people into the fold, or, or again, just educating people on, on the benefits and how it helps those that just like hiking, camping, birding, you know, any of those other things. I think that those are all steps that every hunter needs to think about in the way that they portray their actions, whether it be social media and the way that they talk to other people about their pursuits um, because it, it is something that we do represent a very small demographic uh, in the in total U.S. population. So every little bit, every little conversation helps.
1: Yeah. So Pete, kind of on that, and, you know, as I'm sitting here reflecting, so, you know, I, I transitioned and I went from fisherman hunter as a teenager, killed my first surgery when I was 16. And then I wanted to make that a career, you know, and I went to school, studied wildlife biology, got a master's degree in biology. And I really threw myself into that from the education In college standpoint, but you know, honestly, I never knew the 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 Pittman Robertson story. I never knew the North American model. I never even heard that ever. It while I was being being educated about hunting and the practices and deer hunting, turkey hunting, and so I didn't get any of that until college. So I think you know, podcasts such as this or others, or the hunters now today are a lot more educated than they were. I'll date my stuff here 25 years ago on the challenges and what we're doing. So I think the industry is doing a really good job to keep that in the forefront. But because honestly, I didn't hear any of that stuff until I got to college. And we're taking and was taking a wildlife policy class or a wildlife management class or, you know, some of these types of things. So it was a wildlife techniques. I never knew any of that. So. I say that because I think we're doing a good job of that, but I think there's still a challenge to ensure that we reduce those barriers, those those misperceptions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more that we can educate people on, on why we're out here doing what we're doing, not only to put food on the table, not only for the experience, but for, for the long-term effects on the habitat, on the wildlife populations. Um, And then, yeah, like you said, I, I think it wasn't really until pretty recently uh with with Steve Rinella. He's been obviously a great advocate mm-hmm. for hunting and um and furthering the hunting story here in the United States, getting more people out there. I I was in the same boat as you. I knew not <clears throat> excuse me. I knew nothing about the conservation efforts. I knew nothing about Pittman Robinson um until I think I heard it on his podcast. And to, to be as well-versed and educated in that stuff as hunters so that we can share that with other people who may be not advocates yet, or might actually be flat out opposed to it. The more that we can, we can shed a good light on hunting and outdoor activities in general, um, the better it's going to be for everybody. And that's something that I've been working a lot on, you know, growing up, I was the consumer. I, I would buy, I would buy my tags. I would, I would get the equipment that I needed, but I was never part of any organization until late in high school. We started a DU chapter in our high school, um, and that was it for a long time. And it wasn't until years later that I started joining other organizations like the NWTF and the National Deer Alliance and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. And to be able to be part of organizations like that there's a lot of people that may not, may not have the time, you know, to go out and get boots on the ground, but there's, there's something that all of us can do to, to push conservation in the United States like farther forward. I I fully agree
2: with that. I mean, and and it's, it's your, your instance is not unlike a lot of other people's stories. I mean, mine was the same. I didn't start getting involved in, uh, in chapters, you know, until I was out in Wyoming, and then I did turkey, and I, I mean, I did walleye association of Wyoming mule deer, pheasants forever. I did them all, um, and I and I still try to do what I can to kick into all the organizations. But you know, even if you just look at like, let's say turkey hunting for instance, costs thirty five bucks to be a member of the NWTF. But you know, I I probably spend just as much on brand new calls every year, or you know, if I'm reloading on a box of TSS, I'm spending fifty bucks plus, you know it's uh, it's something $35 is a small investment to make when you care about a species. And and it's, it's not too much different from DU or, or Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. There's, there's that small investment that you're making in, in a species that you want to be able to pursue and you may want your kids to pursue. And maybe you got friends that you're willing to introduce to it as well. So, um, you know, for NWTF, you also get a $25 Bass Pro card back. You can just walk right up the street to headquarters over there for Bass Pro and, and, and go blow it there in the store. so it's, it, I'd say that's probably the least that people can do if they care about a species is Mm -hmm. get involved and and make that initial step. And there's always things you can do beyond that, but baby steps.
0: Well, and, and that's one thing that I really want to push this year more is, uh, for myself, I want to push myself to go and get involved in projects where I actually have hands-on, uh, whether whether that's banding birds or doing population surveys or habitat improvement or trail clearing on public lands. Like I feel like to be fully invested, uh, for myself, I I have the freedom to go and do that. Cause I've got the time I've got, you know, that time freedom to where I can, I can go for a day or a weekend and help here and there. And I think that for anybody getting into a sport, there's even more than the experiences that they have in the field when they're actually, you know, have a shotgun, a bow or a rifle in hand. If you can actually go and see the habitat improvement or see the projects that the organizations are doing and become a part of that firsthand, there's nothing that's going to compare to that in the outdoor world. Uh, I I compare it to like growing your own food, right? Like you you grow vegetables in a garden and you put that time and energy into it. And then that first bite of you know, a carrot or a tomato or whatever, it's gonna be so much better than just going and buying one from the store and not really thinking about it, thinking about where it came from. And so to get involved in projects like that, I didn't again, it was something that I knew nothing about growing up. And and now it's one of those things that I look forward to trying to get out and help any way I can with like here, it's the Missouri Department of Conservation. I can go and volunteer there almost any day of the week and and there's opportunities like that in most states. That's pretty cool, man. Yeah. Um what it, could you guys share a little bit about um NWTF and like when somebody becomes a member, um what what is that money going towards or what are you guys pushing right now whether it's conservation, whether it's uh hunter recruitment, whether it's um furthering the population uh what exactly uh how are the turkeys benefiting, I guess, from, from someone signing up with NWTF?
2: Surely I, I'm going to start out with just a, like a 10,000 foot view and I'm going to pass it off to Mark to get down to some of the more nitty gritty. But, um, you know, the, the mission of the NWTF is the conservation of the American wild Turkey, and it is the preservation of our hunting heritage. So it's two pronged approach. Um, so when you become a member of the NWTF, most of the time it's through a banquet or whether you sign up online. Uh, it's about 86 cents right now that's coming out of a COVID year but typically it's closer to 90 cents on the dollar is going back towards uh, supporting the mission and that can happen in a number of different ways obviously the most uh, the most the way that most people think of is a lot of the activities that we were doing you know a decade or so back and that was helping with trap and transfer relocation of birds and that typically is not happening much anymore. There's still some tiny pockets, but a lot of where the efforts are going now is in landscape level conservation work because the populations have gotten to the point to where the birds are there. But if you don't keep the habitat suitable for them to be able to have proper brooding, nesting, um, then it doesn't matter. You know how many times you try to bring more birds in if it's not suitable for them to to have broods and keep you know recruitment levels up. Doesn't matter but there's also plenty of other species that benefit from that. So conservation is number one. Um, there still are research uh, projects that are going on. Mark will hit on some of those, but that's something that has never stopped throughout the entirety of the NWTF. We've always been doing those, even if we haven't been as good at, at talking about them. Um, but then there's hunter recruitment that's going on across the country. And this is one that, that I think is is misunderstood. I'm gonna touch on it just very briefly. But again, I've seen some talk lately in the outdoor industry or or from people that say, you know, we don't need more hunters. There's already too many people. But I, I think it's selfish to think that the way that they got into hunting, you know, is better than the way that anybody else gets into hunting. There's a lot of people out there that might not otherwise be exposed to the outdoors. And I think that whether again they actually turn into a hunter or they turn into an advocate for hunting policy-wise, I think that it's beneficial to be out there talking about here's how it's done, here's the ethics behind it, here's here's the the impacts that hunting has. So you got conservation, research, uh, hunter recruitment. We're also involved in policy, um, and that that's something where money ends up going to as well, and that's to try to help make sure that there's still hunters' rights because you can't have hunter uh, you can't have our hunting heritage if rights are disappearing. So we are involved, uh, with, uh, state level people all across the country. And then we actually have, um, somebody out of our headquarters that's involved in Washington as well. So there's a lot of things that we're always a part of. I think there were just two main, two, two pieces that, that cleared this past week, or one of them is getting ready to pass. I think, uh, Recovering America's Wildlife Act came out of Senate committee and then the Mapland Act, um, which I think is to try to make it easier for, is it easier for public land mapping it yeah. available to the public mark
1: so i spend on those. so covering america's wallet act would provide 1.3 billion dollars dedicated to state wildlife agencies to manage and to conserve or, or enhance populations of non-game species within the states that are special concern so that's 1.3 billion dollars annually to those state agencies to bolster mm-hmm. their their budget so that's a So anybody listening to this, call your congressman, call your, anybody that you can get a hands on and say, hey, support this, because it's critical. And then the MAPLAND Act is, you know, Dan, you mentioned you've lived in Colorado and you've drawn, you know, Pete, you worked, you've probably killed some birds in public lands in the West. That MAPLAND Act is actually going to bring federal agencies in the 21st century to ensure that they are providing digitized maps and locations for access to ensure that we can access all the public lands that you know are the sportsmen's, and so those two acts are really critical uh for us to have dedicated funding some additional dedicated funding to wildlife and then also providing access
2: so you know when you look at all those things that are going on it's not just that one that one prong approach that people think of of hey birds coming out of boxes again that still happens but there's a lot of different pieces that are moving to make sure that that overall mission of the conservation of the wild turkey and that preservation of our hunting heritage is there. And, and I'd, I'd say Mark can correct me on this, but typically when you're looking at about 90 cents or on the dollar on average years um, being being what goes towards things that are supporting the mission you're also then having our conservation projects that are happening in the field that are happening at a rate of you know 10 to 1 match or even as high as 20 to 1 depending on where we are um to where we're taking that that small investment that somebody makes and then we're matching it with people from the the other conservation organizations we're matching it from people that maybe it's they, they're from the forestry industry or they're from the the outdoor recreation industry and we're 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 just pulling up all that money to make sure that the, the greatest impact is had on the landscape. So I, I think that's probably about as overview of, of, you know, what we do as I can give. Um, like I said, Mark can expand on research. Uh, I think exciting news for us was um, through some additional funding. Uh, we actually just recently launched a request for proposals for even more research to happen. And we're getting ready to hold the 12th uh, Wild Turkey Symposium coming up in June in Asheville, uh, North Carolina. And that's where we're going to be reviewing a bunch of turkey research that's already happened. Um, And I'll let Mark keep going from there. But there's there's definitely a lot more than what people think of when they think of the NWTF.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. All right, guys, I need to take a quick second to tell you about a product that I've been using for quite a while now. It's called Bull Elk Beard Oil. If you've spent any amount of time in the outdoors, whether it's on the mountain, in the marsh, or in the woods, you've felt the effects of the wind, the sun, and the cold on your face. What this product does, it helps you look better, feel more confident, and it helps your beard keep its moisture. Not to mention, it smells great. So now my wife can't complain as much after I come home from a long week of elk hunting. Now I need to tell you, I've gotten to know Brian, the founder, over the past couple months, and he is an awesome guy. Brian made sure that all of these oils are made out of clean products right here in the USA. He also loves to give back to the outdoor community, whether that's through fundraisers for public land acquisitions, or even helping donate money to cover the surgery cost of duck dogs. He's an amazing guy and he makes an amazing product. So go check out bullelkbeardoil.com and be sure to check out the subscription options so that you don't have to run out of your favorite facial hair product. Plus, you can use the code Nomadic and get 20% off your order.
1: So, Dan, you, you probably heard—you know could tell from Pete's excitement. And probably, We could talk about this probably for the whole rest of the show about what NWTF does. And so we're trying to keep it brief here. But Pete's exactly right. You know that we're a membership organization. The volunteers are our lifeblood. Our members are our lifeblood. And our partners are our lifeblood. So we need support that support over the history of this. We're getting ready to embark on our 50th anniversary. Something we're really excited about. Um, And so really, we started in 1973, I think it was March 28th, 1973. And really, since that time, we have been able to conserve or enhance over 20 million acres of habitat across the country that's on public and private land. And to kind of give you the scope and scale, what what does 20 million acres mean? The state of South Carolina, I think, is 19.1 million. So over our 50-year history, we've been able to conserve or enhance this, something the size of South Carolina, if you put it all together. Now, that's the annual. That's annual investments. That's annual, you know, you know, turning the dirt, disking, planting, burning, all of those things that we helped fund through our uh, cost share program, through our state super fund. Also, since that time, we've invested eight million dollars into wild turkey research. And so since 1978, when our research program started and we started allocating funds. and so eight million dollars leveraged four to one, five to one, that's over thirty million dollar worth of dollars going into research and being applied to ensure we're managing turkeys properly. So that's probably what I would say is what are we doing? why are we doing it? And then what's the outcomes of the dollar that we're getting invested from our volunteers and members um Pete touched on the uh hunter retention recruitment we've actually embarked and started you know very early on we we kind of jump started this recruitment retention reactivation work with our Save the habitat save the hunting of wanting to recruit retain or reactivate 1.5 million hunters we've lost ground over that time but we've been able to hit that mark and excess of 1.5 million <clears throat> and then to finish up well i took your research I think everybody, we talked about Missouri's populations being somewhat low in some areas for recruitment. We're hearing that conversations throughout the spring, that we're investing um, additional dollars into wild turkey research. Actually, April 15th, which is tomorrow, we'll be receiving all of the proposals we have for wild turkey research that will then be evaluated in conjunction with state wildlife agencies to apply that research and to fund research that's most important to them. So, and then we're going to be convening in June for the Turkey Symposium, which has been going on since 1959. So that's a, about every five years on average. So again, we're we're excited for it. We're have challenges in front of us, but man, we're 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 an aggressive organization that gets it done. And then now, as Pete said, we're actually now transitioning a little bit into being more of an influencer. And a driving force on a larger scale to create more space for other people to to come alongside us to do the work
2: as well.
0: Man, that it's so cool to hear the the impact that you guys have had. I mean, twenty million acres like that is unbelievable. Um, the amount of of good that the NWTF has done. I mean, you guys have kind of been. I feel like when it comes to conservation agencies and i don't know you know where you stack up on on everything but like you guys are always way up there in the conversation when it t- when people start talking about conservation agencies and and who to who to become a part of who to donate to who to get involved with um i would say to anybody listening if you're not a part of nwtf like go sign up and we'll share more information on that here in a little bit um but that could be the bare minimum. You know what? Could you guys touch on some stuff maybe maybe share what the biggest threat to to turkey hunting is or turkey populations are and then say somebody has a chunk of property what could they be doing to help improve help help with um the brood recruitment throughout the year um is it is it predator control is it habitat is it kind of a combination of a lot of different things Um, how can people be implementing some of the practices that you guys do on a small scale?
1: Yeah. So I'll I'll kind of jump in here and you can add anything that I missed, but I think, you know, what's the biggest threat to wild turkeys? This is kind of what the first question was. And I honestly think it's, it's summed up in a very simplistic way. It's complacency, you know, that we think we have enough bird. Turkeys are doing well. Um, well, yeah, they're doing well. We're good. I've got plenty of birds on my property or I'm hearing birds. Um, and so I think if we do allow us to slip into this realm of complacency, then we we reduce our investment. We reduce our awareness and then we don't support the work going on or don't give enough um enough credence to the state wildlife agencies to manage the birds correctly so um we've always got to be acquiring more information and we need to be conserving
2: more land so complacency i think is a key word um, real, real quick on that mark one thing that i always think of when we talk about that and just a complacency you know hey i got birds in my own backyard and i'm still hearing them is if you go back to before trap and transfer and before you know we hit high mark of just shy of seven million There was a time where turkey hunters as a whole cared about the entire U.S. turkey population, not just their own birds in their backyard, but they were even willing to sacrifice birds from their own state and okay with it because they knew that birds were going to pockets where where help was needed. But but they didn't just care, hey, I'm good. I've got mine. They thought about it as a whole, whereas now, again, there's people that, you know, that they say, hey, I've got mine. Things are good here. I don't have anything to worry about. When really there's still that overall U.S. Turkey population health that needs tending to, and that's something that we're still working on. So, yeah, that, that's
1: a great, great addition there, Pete, because that's um, uh, you know, we need to continue to be a part of something bigger than ourselves, you know, and we need to recognize that our small actions on our forty acres or our, you know back forty, whatever you want to call it, is connected to some larger needs that we have as regional or national, and so. When you think about we use Missouri as example, um, we get a lot of phone calls really, in the set, you know, from me that says, hey, I bought 100 acres. What do I need? I'm not going to do anything to it. I'm just going to set it aside for wildlife. Well, that's probably one of the worst things that you could be doing um, because it's a preservation mentality. And we want to we want to move away from that. We want to go to wise use of the property. We want to have sustainable markets for forestry. So we need people cutting trees. We need people um, understanding invasive species you know that they need to be off the landscape and we need people actively you know managing their property it's not a a, you know absentee mindset it's i'm invested i'm doing it it's like growing your garden it's just a long-term garden you know and so when people say that you know they're like okay yeah i've got my or I've got my out of 100 acres, I've got my five acres of food plots, and I'm putting all my priorities there. Well, let let's let's adjust that mentality a little bit. Let's start managing the entire property through forestry management, through the use of prescribed burning or or selective herbicide applications, and let's make the entire 100 acres more suitable to wildlife, aka turkeys. And then you disperse your turkeys across your property. And then you do reduce the impacts of predation because turkeys are harder to find. They've got more places to go. Then you do allow that turkeys are meant to be eaten. And I think we've all got to recognize that. We all love to eat turkeys, but a lot of things I like to eat turkeys too. And that's okay. They're a prey species. But we have to ensure that what we're providing them access to is equally distributed across the property and then if we can do that, predation does not become an issue. And, and you hit on a keyword that's, you know, probably raises the hackles of a lot is predator control. Predator control is when you're focusing directly on trying to remove the predator base on the landscape. That's not something that's sustainable or feasible long-term and it's a very expensive process. But we do as an organization advocate the use of hunting and trapping and to manage the resources on that in a in a regulated, controlled, balanced way. And so we're very supportive of trapping, but it needs to be done to be complementary to overall, I guess, outcomes of your property. And it's a great way to learn sportsmanship. I'm sorry, woodsmanship. You know, trying to get a, a to an animal to figure out where he's going to place his foot or her foot is a lot harder than when you're trying to just figure out I need to get a deer within 200 yards of me. Yeah, I need to get a turkey within 50 yards, 40 yards of me. Figure out where they're going to place their foot. And once you can figure that out, you're going to be connected to the land.
0: Oh, yeah. I, I tell people that all the time. I was, in fact, talking to a friend this weekend. We were on a fly fishing trip, and I was like, if you want to find out good woodsmanship, find somebody who traps. Because <laughs> that same exact mentality, like, they – I mean, I have a hard enough time getting a deer in a giant field of soybeans in front of me during (laughs) rifle season, much less, like you said, getting, getting the pad of a coyote's paw to hit a four inch circle in the middle of a property. Like, uh, there's, there's a whole different level there. And that's, that's really good insight to think about making the entire property, usable to the animals and you can spread out that population. You can make it harder for the the predators to find them. I honestly, up until this conversation, I've been very focused on, you know, shooting coyotes, taking raccoons off the property, trying to get any, um, any predators that would, that would affect ground nesting birds or even fawns um, out of the area. And I know that it's an uphill battle. I'm never going to clear clear the property of them. They're always going to come right back. Um, but to make the whole property suitable habitat for the animals, um, that's that's really good insight. And that's a practice that I'm gonna to have to start implementing this year.
2: Yeah, I think it it's again, it's it's one part that helps with overall, but if the habitat's not sustainable for for nesting, then doesn't matter the trapping that you're doing, it's it's not going to have the birds aren't going to be able to thrive like they really need to. Yeah.
1: You know, uh, the analogy I've always used, with people when trying to understand that with predation is that how many people have lost a turkey call during a turkey hunt, right? And then it's your, it's a turkey call you really liked, and then you have to go find it. And if you only go to one spot to find it, it's pretty easy to find it. But if you've been all over that property, looking around, calling, hearing birds and, and not knowing exactly where you're going to set up, Well, that that makes it, that's good, because that means you've been hearing birds and you're chasing birds and all this other stuff. But if you only know you only have to go to one spot on your property to find turkeys, you know what's gonna occur for the predator base? They're only gonna go to one spot on your property to find turkeys. And so they're doing what they should be doing. They should be eating turkeys. And what we've gotta do is figure out ways to produce more turkeys that will satisfy the prey base, and provide us opportunities to harvest those.
2: Yeah, that's a that smart makes- an analogy. I like that. Well, you I'm going to take that, Mark, and I'm going to use it future.
1: <laughs> yeah. yeah, no problem. Again, you know, when you drop your keys out of your pocket and you know you've only gotten to one spot in your yard, you can find them. But if you if you have this everything that looks the same and it's all available, and if you're just walking a trail, you know what else walks trails? Predators. You have to make all your land available to turkeys.
0: That's good. Uh do you see a common theme around the country as far as good turkey habitat goes? Like what's lacking in most states?
1: Um from strictly just from the biological side of things, what's lacking is that availability of good early successional habitat. And I'll define early successional because it's maybe a biological term, but it's it's the grasses, it's it's where you're just now starting to get horizontal and, and vertical kind of obstruction, you know, yep. to those turkeys. So you, you don't have that in a lot of places or it's very limited. The Northeast is a good example. Some of the only early successional habitat that we have in the Northeast is on power line rights of waste, which are long linear strips, which are good. But we need more of that. We need um so if we could improve one type of habitat in the southeast or even in the country, it's probably that early successional nesting habitat or brooding habitat to where these these hens and bolts can have a, a big field or multiple small fields to where they can escape and they can hide I mean it's a big game of hide and seek when you're thinking about predators and the more places they have to hide the more successful they're going to be.
2: I think the one other thing to tack onto that that sometimes gets brought up and mark you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's fragmentation of some of that good mm-hmm. habitat. If you have two smaller blocks, of it. And it doesn't give them enough space to be able to get from one to the next. And that can cause issues. So the connectivity
1: of that early successional habitat is, is important. And Pete, that's a good point.
0: Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And it it actually makes me really excited for, uh, one of the main properties I hunt. I've got, I've got permission to do some improvements on it, but it's very limited where I can do them. Um, Mm -hmm. there's a cattle rancher that leases out out of the 230 acres he probably leases out 200 of it for either pasture uh, for cattles or or for soybeans um, but the owner he just decided this year he wanted to clear some trees out on a creek bottom and i was i was kind of concerned about it and he's like man that's how it was when i was a kid like i wanted to get back to that mm-hmm. it used to be just tall grass down there and so now in hearing all of this and having that early successional growth having the having that cover um along the ground for the birds it kind of makes me excited before i was like man he's taking away the woods like there's not a lot of you know big timber out here and um hearing that all those woods are going to be gone and he's wanting it to be tall grass like it used to when he was growing up um that gets me pretty excited about that property
1: yeah now and you know, I think this is probably oversimplified, but if you can manage for the hen, the toms are going to come, you know? And so I think it's so many times, and this is just the mentality of a lot of sportsmen across the country. And we've been a part of, you have, you know, we want to plant that food plot that that gobbler wants to strut in, right? <laughs> you know, well, no, if we can create these areas that the hens want to nest in, you, you know who's going to be around? That gobbler is going to be out there looking for those hens. Just same, you can apply the same thing for deer hunting. You create areas that the does want to be in, the bucks are going to be there. So we have to look at it in a very simple term, is that these birds are out here trying to do exactly what they're programmed to do biologically, and we have to figure out what that driving force is. And so let's manage to the hen and not manage to the tom.
0: Yeah. That makes sense. Um, and I feel like that's a good transition into, uh, I would, I would kick myself and I think I'd get a lot of hate mail for it. If I didn't on the, on the podcast with a couple of NWTF guys, get some, get some Turkey hunting strategies from you guys, because, um, I need, I need to become a better Turkey hunter. Like I said, I get one every year and I'm very fortunate and very blessed on the property that I hunt. But, um, I need to be a better turkey hunter. <laughs> I go out there and I I don't want people, I, especially when I take new people out, I don't want to be the one teaching them because they're going to learn the wrong way probably. I, well, I'll go
2: first on this yeah, man. On. Um I if I'm going to simplify it down to just something that 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 I've I've spoken to numerous people and you know already I've been blessed enough to to help four new people get their first birds this year, but the biggest thing is just patience. I mean, the, the amount of turkey hunts that end with that burst fly, with that with bird flying down off the roost, you know, straight in and you sit there and you watch them strut for a second before you drop them, you know, it basically first shooting light, that's a low percentage. Um, and so it's it's the patience to stick with it, whether it means that you're, you're sticking with it, you know, trying to work around however that bird decides to move first thing in the morning. Because again, I think the one thing that we always forget is we're trying to reverse nature. Um, the way that it happens is that typically that Tom is firing off, he's gobbling and the hens are like, all right, well, I'm, I'm going to go find him, but we're actually trying to turn him to where he comes to us. So maybe his plans, even though you hear him gobbling is he's already got an idea of where he's going to be that morning and he's going to go do his thing. And it's being patient enough to either let him do his thing to where you can then work, work him later in the day, you know, that mid morning, or it's even, impatient enough to where if you're on public land that you let everybody else get frustrated and leave the landscape and then you're the only one there you know from that 10 to 2 block um but it's it's just remembering that it's far more than just the kill if you're patient and you're out there and you're enjoying yourself and you're hearing birds and you're you're getting some time outdoors and honestly that that's a pretty good thing to be a part of um but patience work for my daughter's hunt. We, we had birds come and go three times before she was able to get a, a clean lane. And then um, patience paid off for somebody while I was in Texas to where, you know, you see birds walking the other way and even flying down, going 250 yards away from you. It's there. There's the idea of, hey, let's get up and move and try to hurry up and cut the distance. And we said, no, I have a good feeling that they're going to come back this way.
0: Um, and, and patience worked. So. Man, I'm gonna have to retrain myself. <laughs> I, <laughs> I am that guy that I'm like, oh man, I see him all the way across the field. Let's go after him. Um, but that's good to think. And I've been burned by doing that plenty of times. You know, there was where, some there was some
2: research that was done. Um I think it was uh by Brett Collier and, and Mike Chamberlain where they actually tagged hunters as they went into the field and they tagged the birds and um and, and obviously had- yeah, GPS so where they could see the, the movements or where people were on the landscape. And I think w- one of the things that Brett was telling me one day was that that patience was one of the big things. It was like if you sit down and you have a set, you start calling, that bird may not come to you right away. But that bird is going to remember where he heard that calling coming from. And it's these people that were sitting down calling for 30 minutes and then getting up and moving somewhere else. These birds were almost following their exact steps, but they were always 30, 40 minutes behind. And it was cause those birds had something else to do, but it's a lot of times, even Chamberlain will tell you this. If you sit down and you just, you wait it out, you know, you can, you can try to improve things, but the the people that have the patience, those are the ones that end up filling tax.
1: Yeah. And so that's pretty sound advice, Pete, you know, and I would say that, you know, and this is a couple, uh, you know, understanding what's going on, you know, for the bird and where it's at within the, the scope or the timeline that you're hunting. And I'll give you the good example is if you've got a season that comes in prior to nesting, right? Those birds are gonna act a lot different than after all those hens go to nest. And so knowing where you're at and kind of that, that timeline is important to figure out your strategy because the reason those birds at between 10 and two is, is a popular time to kill birds on public land is pr- most of the time and this is a this is an assumption or anecdotal but it's because those hens have gone to lay their eggs and she has abandoned that bird that that gobbler and so he's standing there he turns around all of a sudden he's like well where is everybody you know and he's like i'm and then he starts become gobbling because he's now wanting to reattract those hens again, and so that gives you that opportunity to make that bird more receptive to being called in because as Pete said, we're reversing nature. It, it is set up for birds, hens to go to gobblers, And as a hunter, we're trying to get them to come to us. And so that, that's one piece. The other piece is change your approaches. And then this is probably more so on public, public land than private land. Get your map out, whatever app you have, or if you've got a hard map, however you do this, and find a different way to approach that bird and approach that roost that's unique that somebody else isn't doing. If you know a bird roosting on one ridge and there's a parking space, that's really easy access to that ridge. Don't go there. (laughs) Find somewhere else and another way to get to that area that you need to be or where that bird is going. Because there's been people that have pulled up that morning and have called that box call or that slate call, and that bird didn't gobble, and so they move on. That bird gobbled, and then they pushed that bird one way. And so knowing knowing how to approach birds differently on public lands uh, in a different direction, I think is is allowed me to kill a lot of birds on public lands because you're going to where those birds are going to go anyway, and they're going, oh, I hadn't heard of somebody calling from a bird calling from over there. I'm going to go check that out. So that's anthropomorphizing the animal a little bit, but just changing your way to to get to those birds adds a lot of success or it has for
0: me. Man, I need I feel like we just need to do a whole nother podcast about tips and tricks because <laughs> I've got a lot to work on. And you guys have only shared a couple things so far. Um
2: I'll no, toss one I'll toss one more out there. And obviously it's it's late for some people to get started on this, but and I'm guilty of this at times too, just because we we always have a lot going on. But if the first day that you break out your calls to start breaking them in or to start working them and, and kind of refamiliarize yourself with it is opening day, then you're already behind the eight ball. It's uh, My kids have probably this year been annoyed as can be, but I've had calls that I've been running as I'm driving them to school since, you know, late January, early February, but it's learning those and trying to do any of the different vocalizations. And it doesn't matter how close you are, as long as your, your cadence is better, but it's, you know, if you're you're not honing your skill just like anything else, you're 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 not doing everything that you can to set yourself up for success. So just plant planning for season the way that you would anything else. I mean, you know, your your sports players are not waiting until first game day to to get out there and start prepping for the season. They're they're starting months yeah. and months beforehand. So yeah,
1: practice and you know, Dan, you've got kids and Pete. I know you do, and I do. Um, these are our noise makers that we can, you We're know, all of our kids have got <laughs> noise, have got games and toys growing up and the man just wear you out because they just never shut up. Well, <laughs> now we get to do that. Yeah. You know, so uh practice use them. And, and one sound advice is you don't have to be a good caller. You don't have to be somebody that's on the grand national calling contests, winners and, and all of this stuff. You need to understand when to use, understand the woodsmanship and you can there's been a lot of turkeys called killed by bad callers and that's okay because there's a lot of bad callers of hens out there on the landscape just i know i've said man that who is that that person sounds terrible and then this hen walks by and she's calling and i'm like oh i sound a lot better than her you know but so uh you don't have to be a great caller you need to understand cadence is important and, and, uh, volume. and volume is important but you don't have to be a world class caller to kill turkeys.
0: Yeah. Oh, I can. I can one hundred percent attest to that. <laughs> I I can too. I'm a
1: terrible caller. <laughs> I can kill turkeys, but it's you know, but I'm not a good caller. I think I am. You know, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds great, but no, I hear somebody else. I'm like, man, I'm terrible.
0: Yeah. I. I, I keep dabbling in different calls. I bought I bought some new calls quite a while ago. I've had calls in my truck. Typically I've got lanyards on every seat back in my truck. I mean, I've got my my waterfowl stuff, I've got my coyote stuff, and then I've got all my um diaphragm calls in my in my little cup. I've got like an extra change holder next to my cup holders. And so I'll have them in there. And speaking of kids being noisemakers, they found my coyote calls and I'll tell you this when I'm driving down the road in the morning, heading to take them to school (laughs) and one of them just rips on a rabbit squeal, it scares the crap out of me. Um, but it's a lot of fun getting them into it as well. What, a what are you guys using as far as decoys go? Um, I've got some hate and I, I feel like there's some people who are set on certain types of decoys. You know, I've used the reaping decoys before, I've used the, you know, um, full 3d. I've got an avian X this year. I got one of those little funky chicken deals. Uh, that was a hot tip from a guest that I had on. He's like, Tom's hate those things. They'll come and beat the crap out of them. We'll see if it actually works or not. But what are you guys running on a typical hunt?
2: So there's times where I use a decoy times when I don't, um, you're right. Decoys do get a lot of hate from people. And I, i tell you, man, that, that I'll just say this before I mention what I use. We as hunters are some of the worst people at breaking down our own community, the way that we go after each other, you know, if we don't support the way one another hunts. And it's honestly, it's frustrating at times because we do more damage to ourselves than, than the non-hunters do. Um But as far as decoys, like I, I didn't have one out when my daughter killed hers. And that was mainly just out of convenience because, well, <clears throat> when we tried to, to move and set up at a different spot. We didn't actually even have time to throw one up. Um, but I think that guy that we were running with that day, um, I was helping call and she had a mentor, but he was running like old feather flex. Um, but, uh, but typically I'm carrying around just one of the avian quarter strut Jake's, um, buddy of mine, uh, did, uh, you know, been in the industry for a while, but I remember picking his brain one time. I'm like, "What do you, what are you carrying around?" He said, "That's all I carry anymore." He said, it "Doesn't matter the time of the year." He said, "That single quarter strut Jake decoy is something that that seems to elicit a good response." So, you know, we we run those sometimes. Sometimes we run nothing, Um, but most of the time, I'm going to have just that one decoy. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, yeah, it's interesting because it's even
1: here. You know, peak strategy. I'm more of a hen. Hend decoy person if i'm going to use one you know especially for thinking about you know hunting easterns you know i'm a little bit more conservative in in my approaches because easterns the ones that i've hunted are a little bit more have been a little bit more timid and not nearly as aggressive as rios and mariams get and so and osceola's are pretty aggressive too and so i normally run a hen decoy um if I do use one, and it really depends on am I setting up or am I, if I'm working an active bird, I'm probably not going to throw a decoy up if I strike, strike one. Because he's, he's responding and he's coming looking for that hen. And so he's going to he's more than likely going to show up. But if I'm setting long term from limited property, I may set one up at a, in a location that's going to bring somebody's attention between that 10 to two scenario that's out there that's quiet that's walking around and they see it because he's using that field so um, and then you know also being the population or the the dynamics on your property also can impact which hen which decoys to use because you got a lot of young jakes you know or a lot of two-year-old birds that you know utilizing different the jake decoys or a strutter decoy or or even hen decoys can influence their behaviors because i i've seen a big strutter decoy actually a bird get up, see it, and then they turn around, they walk off. <laughs> you know, no, so
0: I've, I've and had and that so you get
1: before. back to camp, and you're like, man, I should have done this. You know, it's kind of like moving the waterfowl decoys. I, I hunt with buddies that they change their, the decoy setup on waterfowls every 15 minutes. And it's like get the hell out of the decoys. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know, and then you've got other guys that are like, nope, we throw out seven decoys, and that's all we use. You know, so. It's going to vary, but I agree with Pete, man. we got to stop beating each other up for strategies. We need to ensure those strategies are safe and that we're being wise and and using them correctly to where Mm -hmm. we don't have a a misperception, but different tactics are okay. Everybody does things differently, and we've got to stop beating ourselves up as an industry that, oh, I'm a decoy user versus a non-decoy user. I use Jake's, and you're in, and yours wrong. Man, we got to throw that out the window, man. We just need to say, right here, join it. Let's
0: move forward and let's be
2: safe about it. Yeah, absolutely. The, the other part to that real quick is that there's a common misconception. and You know, even though I said I always just use a quarter strut, Jake, that doesn't work all the time. Just like a hen's not going to work yeah. all the time. There, there is no clear, like, chosen path that, like, if you put this decoy out in this scenario, that you are always going to get a bird. That That is far from the truth. Um, whether, you know, whether you're using that full strutter again, the birds, it's not a 100%, um, you know, every, every, things are different every single time. You really honestly never know what you're going to get, but you're trying to use strategies that are out there, legal strategies that are out there to, to try to get that end goal of punching that tag. So,
0: yeah, that's, that's the camp that I fall in. I'm like, I'll do whatever it takes as long as it's legal and ethical to, to get it done. I'm not. I'm not a, a decoy snob or a call snob. I'm like, I just, I'll figure it out, you know, (laughs) hopefully I wish I figured it out a little bit quicker during the season each year, but, um, I I think that's going to come with time. Um, man, we, this has been an awesome conversation and I hate to cut it off, but I do want to give you guys a chance before we hop off to share where people can follow along um with you guys personally or with the NWTF as well as how do they go about becoming a part of the organization and if they already are how can they how can they get more involved surely
2: so uh NWTF is on uh Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, you can find us on any of those um we're active on all those social channels engage with us, share your seasons with us, share your your pursuits Um, As far as finding out more information, tips, tactics uh, for hunting, uh, you can go to nwtf.org and that's also the place that you can find out about conservation work that's going on in your area or even ways, you know, we got things on there about how to manage your own property. Um, Tips and tactics, one of our our most uh, highly trafficked pieces this time of year is turkey sounds. So, you know, if you're brushing up on your calling, just crank that up in the car one day, (laughs) plug it through to your radio however you do that and, um, you know, browse all those sounds. But if you want to get involved, nwtf.org, you can sign up to become a member. But you can also search out your local chapter, help become a committee member, find out what projects are going on, find out what outreach events are going on, help mentor somebody new, whether it be a youth or an adult. But there's plenty of opportunity to get involved and help provide uh, provide an avenue for turkey hunting, this thing that we all love and enjoy. help provide a way for it to continue on for generations to come.
1: Yeah. Um. Yeah, and I'll give one kind of neat story about that. Is So I was 14, 15 years old, uh, and my uncle drugged me to a NWTF committee. And I say drug because at 14, 15 years old, I was like, what? what is going on? Well, I didn't, I killed my first bird, my first turkey by myself on somebody's property that I met at that committee and a committee member that I was, that I, the gentleman, he said, yeah, you can go turkey at my place. That's fine and so finding those networks is key and so you can also go find out like Pete said you can search your state you can search by zip code you can find your local banquet and event maybe it's a youth event maybe it's a women outdoor wheeling sportsman mentor somebody um and then there's also access to our conservation staff to hear more about what's going on in your state we've got you know 60 50 regional directors that help with the volunteers and that engagement. We've got about 50 conservation staff that are scattered out across the country that are delivering the mission of the organization. And then we also have in some states we have what's called R3 coordinators, hunter retention recruitment, reactivation coordinators that are working with state agencies to provide programs for mentors and for to get people outdoors. So man, it's a it's a plethora of information we encourage you all to go check it out and you know appreciate the time today.
0: Yeah, absolutely. It it was great chatting with you guys. And I will say those banquets, NWTF banquets are amazing. Uh, Before I ever really got serious about turkey hunting, um, I got invited to one and I've gone almost every year. In fact, I almost flew back to Colorado just for the NWTF banquet that my buddy helped put on um, because it's a good time, good food. And anytime you can like buy tickets and potentially win a gun or new hunting equipment. I mean, you can't go wrong with that, right? Um, So thank you guys so much. We'll definitely have to uh, reconnect. And um, I'm curious to see how your guys' hunting season goes. And hopefully I I get the bug here in the next week or so. Absolutely, man. Appreciate you having us. Thanks. And that is going to wrap it up for today's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed that one because, I mean, there's no better advocate for turkey hunting than the NWTF. And if you haven't already become a member, I would highly recommend it. I mean, the amount of work that they do for conservation, habitat restoration, um, hunter recruitment i mean as i'm sure you gathered from this podcast they do so much and it's never ending and they're constantly trying to improve and figure out how they can benefit wildlife all over the country so it was a joy to have pete and mark on and man i as always i want to connect more with these people like i want to go meet in person i want to go hang out and do hunts with them and so hopefully we can make that happen soon Uh, Full disclosure though, by the time I got around to fully editing this episode and by the time you guys release it, our season will have already been over. Now, that being said, I have had one of the craziest seasons ever. I've had more encounters, seen more birds, like just in general, seen a lot of other crazy animals had more success, put in more time on field edges, in the woods, on fence rows, trying to do it right. And gosh, it has been a wild ride. And I'll say, I'm starting to understand why people are crazy about it. I don't know that it'll ever take the number one spot in my outdoor hobbies and passions, but it's definitely working its way up the ranks. So hopefully you guys have caught the bug. Because I'm really enjoying it and uh, I'm kind of sad that I'm only two days away from it being completely over. Anyways, we're going to do a full recap of it. Me and a couple buddies. And I'm excited to share all of those stories with you from our 2022 turkey season here in a little bit. But until next time, always choose adventure and God bless.